Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. All right, being a Thursday today, we're going to have our Q&A with regards to all things COVID-19. And I do have our resident specialist in the field. It's Professor Beatrim Fielding, who is uh, standing by on the line. And we're going to start taking those calls now on 0891-104207. And uh, we're going to be taking also voice notes with all questions related to COVID-19. Professor Fielding is a Director of Research Development at the University of the Western Cape. He's also a virologist. Uh, good afternoon and thank you so much for making the time to talk to us again, Dr. Uh, P- Professor Fielding. Good afternoon, Pamela, and good afternoon to the listeners. Professor Fielding, let's start with the bigger announcement that was made by uh, President Donald Trump just the other day and the sceptical reception that other, other colleagues um, of yours received the news. Won't you just take us through what that particular announcement was and, and why it's problematic? So which, which announcement from Donald Trump? He makes so many. Which ones are you specifically referring to? <laughs> so so recently he, he made the announcement that the, he's going to, I think there will be an emergency um, use of, uh, pla- is, it, is it plasma? Um, for mm-hmm. for treatment of COVID-19. And um, the FDI had to very quickly maneuver around his request and, and honor the fact that he wanted to speed up uh, a new treatment um, for, for patients in the U.S. So any of these announcements, and that's why, you know, I, I need to be very specific on, on which request specifically or, or statement. Mm-hmm. There are many of these um, um, statements going around and, and one of the newest ones worldwide, and I've just looked at a, at a study that I read yesterday, where convalescent plasma is being looked at. Yes. So this is really plasma from people who have previously been infected. So obviously their bodies have produced antibodies. And there, there are some studies that I've seen um, where this plasma and the antibodies specifically to offer some protection. But once again, it's one of those where very much depend on who do you ask about this, uh, about the success rate, and who do you speak to? So some groups will say it's extremely successful, others say it's not. And, and that's really the enigma, the enigma that we're seeing with this virus, that the, the results in the reports are not consistent from the various groups, which is good science, but very confusing to the left person out there. Okay, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was referring to that very uh, study, the plasma study. Well, it, I don't even know if yeah. it's under, uh, it's being studied at the moment, but it's a treatment that he wants to start administering. And yeah. and the yeah. issue here is that, you know, some people are saying, well, it's it's not, it's not the, the tests were not vigorous enough. In other words, there were not patients who were isolated only with the plasma treatment in as, as being isolated as the only treatment. They were treated with plasma mm. treatment mm. as well as other things. And so we can't conclusively so, so, say that it is this plasma treatment that was successful. And that, that's very often the problem amongst the different studies. If you look at the malaria treatment, the hydrochloricones, if you look at the anti-HIV, the reindicivers, if you look at the steroids, if you look at the, um, what was the other blood thinners? Yes. All of those, if the studies are not properly, properly, probably, properly planned, sorry about that, if it's not planned properly, then you would have issues. So very often it is not what one treatment would work, but what integrated treatment would work. So that is the issue with many of these studies. I've seen studies where they are very clearly shown now that um, some of the anti-HIV drugs are very effective. But in those studies, 
the experiments have not been done scientifically almost because it has been done with other things. Not all the patients have been on the same treatments before. Um, they're receiving other treatments, and that complicates interpretation of all of these results. And that is why you see the upcry, the outcry from the scientific community very often. But another portion of the scientific community would be in favor of that. Mm. I, I, the, the study I mentioned earlier was reported in a Thai um, online uh, medical website that says they want to look at convalescent uh, plasma yes. and, and look at the antibodies from somebody else, how protective it is. So yes, um, it very much depends on, on the scientists that you speak to, but very importantly, you really need to look at the study and how well that study was planned with all of the, the possible controls. So those without plasma, those with plasma, those with mixtures, those without mixtures, studies really need to be planned really well before we can make these type of announcements and decisions. I suppose, Prof, um, the, the issue is the urgency uh, of, of, you know, and the desperation all of us have to come up with something. Mm. And that's, that's the difficulty, isn't it? Exactly. But as, as scientists, we're also very aware of the fact that rushing through um, treatments or experiments can be even more lethal than mm. the, or detrimental than the, the actual disease. Mm. But we must be very careful. Only, only on Saturday I read a study, um, a report that says, the anticoagulants in one study they've seen those severe cases mm-hmm. um, a 50% protection rate. So people were 50% um, less likely to die in that particular study. Yes. So you see, so, so we're testing these things more and more. We're understanding more. The biggest problem from a non-scientist perspective is rushing things through because we cannot make these things worse than what they are. Professor Fielding, there, there is a lot of talk around um, once once people have had COVID nineteen and have have been said to have recovered, the the damage that has left that's been left behind by the disease. Um, there's a lot of talk around how much that damage is damage to the lungs, damage to the heart, to the brain. Can you talk to that? And I think that is really uh, coming to light now. We've never seen this with the other coronavirus outbreaks before. But I think that is purely a factor of the other ones disappearing so fast. Mm-hmm. Yes, MERS is still around. The circulating ones are still around. But the, the other big ones, SARS 2002, appeared. So all we do see there's very almost lingering effects afterwards. And data now is kind of pointing to the fact that this is residual effect, so inflammation that's still persisting even if the virus is gone, and in the blood clots. Those two are the the, the most damaging. And if you have persistent inflammation, especially in organs, and if you have blood clots in in organs, for instance, can lead to permanent damage. So it's really those residual effects uh, from the body fighting the disease, those hyper-responses. That appears to be the real problem at the moment. Mm. Even for people, um, it's not near the mild cases, often even though we do see it, but more those moderate to mild and those severe cases. It is becoming more and more common that persistent um, symptoms that we do see. Prof, we are hearing that there is almost an 85% recovery rate now in South Africa. What do we attribute this to? It's just if you look worldwide, even though there's been a huge focus on the number of deaths, if you really look at the percentage of those numbers, 
the percentage of death was not that high. Mm. So worldwide, we've always said the recovery rate is extremely high, especially in South Africa, I think, where we essentially tested everybody that was in contact with somebody mm. at one point. So even people with mild um, or asymptomatic people were tested, and if they were positive, they would have been put down as COVID positive. But their chances of recovering fully was much, much bigger. So worldwide, there's still a tendency of about 80% plus that's recovered. So it's really that small percentage that I think should have focused on more to protect them more. Because the problem is not the, the, the vast, vast majority of people. It's really that small minority that's at risk of developing the biggest, the more severe COVID. They should really be our focus. And, and when I come back, I'm just going to ask you, you know, we obviously then need to check it, what it is that we're doing right um, to, to, because yeah. these numbers yeah. are going up, um, these recovery numbers, um, they're going up. So there, there must be something we are starting to do right in treating these patients that, that's working. All right, we'll do that in a short while. Prof, let me just take a quick break and then um, I'll also allow you to respond to that question. I will also take your calls on 0891-104-207. We'll also take your WhatsApp notes on 0614-104-107. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. Thank you so much for staying with us. I'm in conversation with Professor Beatrim Fielding, who is going to take all your questions COVID-related. And he's a director of research development at the University of the Western Cape and virologist as well. Um, Prof, thank you so much for staying with us. I'm going to come back to you with that answer, but I just want to take a quick call from Errol, who's calling us from Durban. Good afternoon, Errol. Thanks for calling. Oh, hello, Professor. Hi, you? I'm well, thank you. Okay. Um, you know, there were a few reports that there was a country, I think it was Thailand, mm-hmm. uh, they had a population similar to ours, that they had a very low infection rate and a very low death rate compared to ours. I think there was only 12,000 uh, contacted the disease and about only three or 400 uh, died. So they asked these people, what, what, you know, what do I do? So... They said that they, what they do is insert a pinch of salt in nostrils every day. And uh, I'm just wondering, does that, does that, would that help? Mm, interesting. Professor Fielding? Uh, just, just repeat the caller's question. He, he's saying Thailand, that... But he, it was very unclear. Yes, he, he's saying he's not sure which particular nation it was, but this particular nation, he suspects it's Thailand, um, was, was experiencing very low... Uh, uh, you know, numbers of people who are getting infected. And the reason was that they were sniffing some, a piece, you know, a pinch of salt each day into their nostrils. Would this be something that you would recommend people do? Um, I would not recommend. There is no scientific evidence for that. I think the, the caller is uh, speaking about Thailand. Yes. And I think I've mentioned this in, in one of our earlier conversations. Yes, we have, yeah. There's some very, there's some very interesting speculation that says, in Thailand and in those type of regions, people were exposed to a coronavirus that were very similar, even and not as deadly, from, a, from an animal, or they have a higher antibody concentration to the circulating coronavirus. Mm, mm. So there is some measure of antibody protection against COVID. However, we should keep in mind that all of these uh, numbers that we see are very much dependent on an effective testing strategy by a government. Mm. So if the, if the Thai government or whichever government the caller is referring to has a very effective 
far as testing strategy and the numbers are still low. That is probably what we need to look at. Is one of the previous vaccinations, remember you asked me about the BCG vac- mm-hmm. vaccine that kids get, could it offer some protection? Mm-hmm. Could it be another coronavirus that's offering some protection? So those would be the type of studies that we'd be looking at. But it is uh, very, very, very unlikely that uh, salt into the nostrils would uh, protect against the virus. There's no scientific evidence mm. for that. I mean, you have mentioned this, and it's it's quite interesting. But you've also mentioned the fact that the you know it could be a combination of things. It could be a DNA makeup as well, uh, as well as obviously previous oh, exposure. Mm. All right, let's take a, a yeah, voice note. And, and, yes. and only, uh, maybe just add, Camilla, just uh, two weeks ago, mm. I saw a, a report that says uh, blood groups yes. of people yes. are important. So certain blood groups mm. are, are more susceptible. Certain genders are more, I mean, uh, male more than female. So is it something hormonal? You know, yes. all of those yeah. things we need to look at. It, I mean, look, I'm clutching at straws here, but... Could it be something like what we've seen with HIV and AIDS where there is a specific DNA makeup of a group of people that also have this, you know, immunity to, to contracting the disease? Could it be likely something like that as well? There could be some um, um, increased susceptibility. Mm. I've seen, I've not seen super convincing studies yet. Mm. But those studies that are saying, yes, genetics, which determine blood group. Um, the gender, which is determined by genetics, you know, those type mm. of things. Mm-hmm. I think those need to be need to looked at in more detail. Mm. Because once again, if we know which population group is more at risk, mm-hmm. or which portion of that population group, we could target those and protect those better. Yes, of course. So, so those are really studies, those are studies that need to be rolled out um, to a wider group of, of scientists in various locations to get really good results, I think. Prop, prop, before we went to an ad break, I was asking you, if we are able to isolate what we are doing better to to enhance this recovery rate? I don't think it's necessarily something that we're doing better. Mm-hmm. I do think that we are now equipped to identify earlier on when somebody is at risk of developing severe COVID. Remember, you asked me about uh, those six clusters of symptoms yes. a while ago. Yes. So if we know that, we can predict eight days in advance this person is at bigger risk of developing severe disease. We could now prescribe them uh, the, the drugs. We can uh, prescribe steroids. We can prescribe the blood thinners, even the antimalarial drugs. But I think it's a measure of that. Um, and then also us just spreading the, the curve almost over a longer period. It might have prepared our medical services better for better support of critically ill people. But if you look worldwide... 60 million people nearly covered worldwide. That's a huge number. Can I bring in... I think it's very important. Go ahead. Can I bring in the issue of diet? And and I'm bringing it in because there is now more... you know, there, there there is just a, a bit a bit more emphasis on diet than there has been before, and what diet can do in assisting the body's resistance to the disease. And I I'm, I'm, I know I'm clutching at straws here, but could that be it? In other words, it's not that the people won't catch the virus, but it's how then they also look after themselves, whether it's before they get the virus or during their period while they they have the virus. There's a lot of talk about what to eat and how to eat and what kinds of vitamins to consume. Could could that be it? 
I think that could play a role. Remember when we spoke about the comorbidities, Mm -hmm. I said I do not think it's the comorbidity as such. I think it is the inflammation that goes with that comorbidity. Mm -hmm. So there's really good scientific evidence. Much of the food that we consume can lead to inflammation in the body. Mm. And if you have this pre-existing inflammation, in low level, does that predispose you to developing more severe? I don't know, but it is plausible. So you have a very valid point. Interesting. Okay, let me just take a quick voice note for you, uh, Prof. Uh, good afternoon, Sis Pimelo. Uh, it's Fisher in Richards Bay. Uh, I would like to ask the doctor uh, about the reinfection. I've noticed that it's difficult for people to be reinfected because I think we have quite a few cases where people are test positive again after they tested positive before so i would like to know if does that mean if you get this virus your body is already immune to it at a later stage when you get exposed to a surface where there is coronavirus thank you so much greetings jabuchilwani in has a view on saturday uh i felt very very cold during the day and uh, I had to go back to the bed because I wanted the blankets. And I thought it was just a cold day. And then in the evening, when I went in to sleep, I felt very, very cold and it was worse. My wife spoke with a friend for almost half an hour. After that, she came to bed. She found me still cold. I suspect that I may have been affected with the coronavirus. If I take a, a test, will it show that I had it or not? Thank you. All right, Prof, I'm going to ask you to, to maybe be on standby. We'll come back with the responses to those questions. And if you didn't hear it, we'll play them again. But you can start uh, calling in as well on 891 I'll also take those voice notes on 614 I'm in conversation with Professor Beatrum Fielding, who's going to be taking your questions uh, all around COVID-19 at this time. He's a Director of Research Development at the University of the Western Cape and is also a virologist. Let me just take a quick break and go to the headlines with Nani Kabiokas at one. Life happens with Pinelo Modine. All right, so I'm, I'm with Professor Beatrum Fielding, uh, who's going to be taking your calls on all things related to COVID-19. We, Before you enter the headlines, we had two voice notes come through for you, uh, Prof. Let me just play them again so that you can hear them one more time. That's fine. That's fine, Pamela. Okay, are you fine? Okay, let's go ahead. I'm, I'm fine. So the first one, um, just to show you how quickly things change. Mm. We've had this question about the reinfection before. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, all, I've always said uh, the, the cases that we read about in the media about reinfection, there was no clear evidence that the person cleared the virus definitively before the second, what they think is the second infection. But there's no scientific proof. Now, at the uh, beginning of last week, a study was published, and please remember, this is only one person out of nearly 45 million people infected. Mm-hmm. But just to show you that there, this is a possibility. This person claimed to have been reinfected 40 days after that initial mm. infection disappeared. Scientists went and they looked at the genetic material, and genetic material varied between the virus of the first infection and the second infection. So even though it's only one case out of 45 million worldwide, there is now proof that this person was reinfected. 
Mm-hmm. Or something happened to the antibodies and the immune system. We don't know whether the virus changed enough to reinfect, mm-hmm. but there seems to be, it means plausible, so very, very unlikely. So we need more studies on that. The second one, please, anybody who experiences any flu-like or cold-like symptoms, just by looking at symptoms, you cannot determine whether you have flu, a cold, or COVID. You need to be tested, please. And I'm especially those living in their home with you. And sanitize. Uh, shade areas, please. Prof, we've spoken about this, this the, the period to test, and and he he seems to be feeling fine now. I mean, he didn't say that, but I got the sense that he's feeling much better now. Does it matter now that he goes and tests, or should he just be isolating for the, the number of days? I think now we're down to 10 days that he should be isolating for. So remember, this person speaks about he had symptoms on Saturday. Mm. Um, I and think it's should, Thursday I think today. He should, uh, he, should, uh, he should isolate. Yeah. Um, but if he can be tested, remember, not all provinces and medical services are testing the staff using the same testing criteria. Yeah. So he should really call his, his healthcare provider to find out whether he should be tested or just isolate himself. What's your suggestion? <laughs> If they do allow, I would I would have him tested. Yeah. Um, only only today I gave somebody advice because they tested positive and they were in contact with small kids. Oh. And I said the small kids might not have symptoms, but they could be infected. They could infect others. So if if the medical services allow, test the small kids as well, especially since the two older ones are infected. So. so Basically, I'm asking whether he should be testing or, he, I think he mentioned the wife, or we should be worried more about the wife and just isolate him. Because because we now know that in the specific window, of, you know, a specific window, he, he could be positive, but he, he's not likely to infect other people. Or by the time he tests now, I mean, it's almost what, it's today, five days later. How, how, what good is the test going to do? So that's maybe what I'm asking with regards to the kind of strategies we have. Is it him that we want to test or do we want to test the wife and maybe just isolate him? You see, and that's the, that's the enigma and that's the, the million-dollar question. So we've discussed this before. Yeah. Somebody, even after symptoms have disappeared, yes. somebody could still be infected and share virus, and share the virus even up to 20 days later. Okay. So if there's high-risk people in the household with him, if the wife is in contact with others high risk, yes. request a test. It is still up to the, the medical facility to say, hang on, no. this is a very costly test, mm. and we, we only test those who fit certain criteria. It's really up to them. But if it, if it can be done, by all means, try to be tested. Okay. I hear what, exactly what you're saying. All right, I hear what you're saying. Uh, Prof, with, with everything that you've been reading lately, I mean, as you were saying yourself, that there are, there's a lot of data that comes through and it sounds like you're getting quite a lot. What, what, what else have you seen that's, that's quite recent that you need to tell us about? I've seen recent government um, uh, announcing the antibody test. Mm-hmm. And I was actually asked earlier this week, so does that, how does that change the fight mm. against COVID? Mm-hmm. It, it is really not a diagnostic test. It is more a test to really determine how this virus has behaved in the population. And it, it tells you something about whether somebody has been infected or not. So it's not really a diagnostic test. 
So, okay. so I am a bit concerned about people being so optimistic that this would make testing quicker and mm. easier. It doesn't really do that. Okay, I'm a bit concerned about that. Okay, let's take um, the two voice notes that I think we've got for you. Good afternoon to you and the listeners. Is it okay to say that most South Africans would have contracted the virus unknowingly and recovered from it unknowingly? Is is, is that is that true or is that does that make sense? Thank you so much. From chapter two. Good afternoon, SAFM. My name is Mlungis. Uh, not long ago, about a month now, my wife and I recovered from the COVID-19. After we tested positive at a public facility, we recovered without any treatment as we were instructed to self-isolate, then seek medical attention if it gets worse. So we went there again after two weeks, we tested negative. So I don't know, was there, is, is there a possibility that you can recover without any treatment or maybe there was something wrong with our test? Thank you. All right, Professor Fielding, just that question keeps coming back of, of whether the tests are accurate enough um, for, for, I mean, do you feel that the tests are accurate enough, Professor Fielding? The, the tests, unfortunately, are the best at, uh, at this point in time. So mm. we need to we need to really trust the test. Yeah. Uh, there will be a margin error in all type of, of medical testing. If your symptoms have disappeared and you have tested negative, by all means, you can assume that you are negative. Yes, there is a margin of error, but there are no other ways except very complicated lab-based techniques. That is not open for, for public consumption. Um, but the tests we have are the, are the best that we have, and we have to trust them, unfortunately. All right. I'm going to give you a chance to, to come back with a response for the other voice note, but let me just take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more. Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. My guest is Professor Beatrim Fielding, who is taking your questions, all COVID-19 related. He's a director of research development at the University of the Western Cape. He's also a virologist. Uh, Prof, the other question that came through, would you want to, to address that? No, it's fine. Thank you. So, Pamela, um, let me just respond to the second caller again and link it with the first caller. Mm. So what the caller has raised, both him and his wife recovered without any treatment. Mm. That's exactly the point I've been trying to make since day one. The vast majority of people, and here we're talking probably 90, 92% of people in the end, will find that the bone is strong enough to fight off this um, infection and clear it on its own. That's the beautiful thing about how the body protects itself. How does that link with the, with the first question? Mm-hmm. If you look at the, the four circulating coronaviruses, between 10 and 30% of the common colds every year are caused by these coronaviruses, the other four that circulate. They're not, as, they're not deadly, um, even though you do have very, very minute deaths. So I would not be surprised if in the end we see about 10, between 10 and 20% of the South African population were actually infected but they were never tested because very, very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. So I would not be surprised if we see that in the end. And that's the important thing about the antibody tests that was announced this week. 
they can now be used to really test wider and broader so we can get a picture of how this really affected us in the end. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, I, I get that. I think there is also uh, another voice note that, that's just come through, Prof. Oh, afternoon, uh, people of SFM. My name is Ephraim from Leidenberg. I could like to ask the doctor, they said this virus is leaving a damage inside of the lungs. So I need to know that I'm, I am on the safe side to like to walk with someone who recover from the virus or what? Prof, did, did you understand that? I didn't get quite your question. I, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question, so we'll play it again. Oh, afternoon, uh, people of SFM. My name is Ephraim from Leidenberg. I could like to ask the doctor. They said this virus is leaving a damage inside of the lungs. So I need to know that I'm, I am on the safe side to like to walk with someone who recover from the virus or what? I must say, I, I'm not sure if I understand it. But would you maybe... I, I think... Yes? Yes. I think that what the, the caller is concerned, can you be exposed to somebody who has recovered from the virus? Because he has read and heard that the virus causes the, uh, damages the lungs. To the lungs, so yeah. Remember, somebody... Yeah. So somebody who has cleared from the virus should not be infected anymore. So they cannot infect us because there's no more virus in the body. Remember, damage in the lungs is really the virus making more of itself in the lungs and certain of the viral components in the lungs will then stimulate the body. It activates the body to overreact. It either creates inflammation or blood clots and that causes the damage of the lungs and other organs. But somebody who wasn't and has now been cleared is very, very unlikely to still have virus in the body and be able to infect you. And we must get rid of that stigma. This yeah, so like just because like yes, just because you've got damaged lungs doesn't mean that you're infective. Exactly, exactly. All right, we've got another voice note, Prof. Absolutely, Pimela. I'm more worried about um, frontline workers, particularly those that work in hospitals. My wife works in a, in a hospital as a nurse, and she came home positive some time back, and we all tested positive. We are over the age of 55. Um, the little girl who was 17 years old, you know, survived. I survived. We did not present with any symptoms, but she did. And most critical is the question of intimacy. When we come home, we may isolate and do all of those things. But, you know, we can't just be intimate. And it's worrisome. How, oh, Prof, um, that's for you. Camilla, <laughs> you know, in, in, in March this year, yes. I wrote an opinion piece that was published in the, in the Cape Times. Mm. I said right from the start, my biggest concern is not the normal South African, mm-hmm. the general public. Mm-hmm. It is those with comorbidities above a certain age, but even more, our frontline workers. Mm. The frontline and healthcare workers, they became infected in places such as Italy and Spain, mm-hmm. and they were responsible for, for much of the spread of this virus. Yeah. We need to take care of those by providing the PCE. And because remember, we spoke about this virus being able to be aerosolized. So mm-hmm. very fine drops mm-hmm. in the environment. And the biggest risk are for those in hospitals. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is ill in hospital will have a very high viral load. They will cough more, so they will expel more virus. 
And that's why uh, we need to educate our healthcare workers. How do you treat and minimize infection? We cannot have zero and plus um, threat. How do you minimize it best for you and ultimately for your family? So it is changing your masks as often as possible, sanitize as often as possible, wear your gloves, wear your outer protective clothing. But that is my biggest concern. We need to look better after our frontline medical workers. I agree fully. But he's saying they can do all of that, but when they come home, there's a problem. That's exactly it. So any measure that we take, it's very, very unlikely that we take the risk out totally. Mm. So this is a this is a very crucial part of the fight against COVID. And we need to do our utmost best, but yet even our utmost best might not be totally 100% effective. Yeah. And that is not just for COVID. In all fights we've had thus far against infectious diseases, it's unfortunately been those people, the, the frontline healthcare workers, they unfortunately are the ones who's on the frontline and, and at, at greater risk, unfortunately. It's always such an eye-opener talking to you, Prof. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us this afternoon. Thank you, Pamela. Good talking to you. Thank you. That's Professor Beatrim Fielding, who is a Director of Research Development at the University of the Western Cape. He's also a virologist. Thank you very much for taking all our COVID-19-related questions.